In the end, our confidence in spiritual restoration comes from thinking within a covenantal framework, a feeling that we are part of something greater, stretching all the way back to God's relationship with Abraham. Tashlich is about reminding us of Micah's description of God's connection to his people and our connection with each other. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 188, The Tashlich of Micah. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. In his book, Learned Optimism, University of Pennsylvania psychologist Martin Seligman argues that one of the most important distinctions between people is what he calls their explanatory style, meaning the way they explain setbacks and failures that they experience. Learned Optimism describes how Seligman's research into optimism began. He had originally focused his research on helplessness, and then he decided to study resilience and to see how that could be central to success. Recognizing that of all professional disciplines, the field of sales required a remarkable degree of willingness to overcome rejection, Seligman met with the leaders of Metropolitan Life, one of the leading insurance companies in America. At the time, Metropolitan Life administered to all applicants for sales jobs, a standardized test that focused on inherent aptitude for salesmanship, rejecting those who did not score high enough. Seligman suggested, however, that a second series of tests be administered geared not toward innate ability, but rather to explanatory style, whether one approached rejection as a permanent setback or as a temporary one. He further proposed that a team of salesmen who had failed the original test, but registered as having a better explanatory style, be formed in parallel with those salesmen that had been hired based on the conventional method. The results were striking. The optimists who had initially been rejected, quote, outsold the pessimists in the regular force by 21% during the first year and by 57% in the second year, end quote. The reason, Seligman explains, is that while aptitude would seem to be a critical factor, over time, as the, quote, mountain of no's accumulates, persistence should become decisive, end quote. Seligman's research is fascinating and is especially applicable to the Jewish task of teshuvah, repentance, which is, of course, always important but is the particular covenantal task during the days of Rosh Hashanah through Yom Kippur. To accept responsibility for one's flaws and failings while at the same time believing that these flaws are not permanent, that they can be overcome, is essential to Teshuvah. And if one's perspective is central to accomplishing this goal, then it is verses from the book of Micah, read several times during the penitential season, that allow us to understand how this can be achieved. The last chapters of Micah give us a positive vision, like Isaiah, his parallel prophet. Micah describes in chapter 5 the defeat of Assyria, the restoration of biblical Israel, and the rise and victory of the house of David. And like Isaiah, as we shall see, Micah emphasizes that the worship of God in the temple is not ideal unless it reflects true, admirable inner motivations. But unlike Isaiah, Micah cites a story from the book of Numbers that we know and applies it to his own message. Speaking through Micah, God says in chapter 6, verse 3, and I'm using here the Koran Jerusalem Bible translation, O my people, What have I done to thee, and wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me. For I brought thee up out of the land of Mitzrayim, and redeemed thee out of the house of bondage, and I sent before thee Moshe, Aharon, and Miriam. O my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Bilam, the son of Beor, answered him, from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous act of the Lord. The story of Bilam, as we remember, is about a prophet who was hired by the king of Moab in order to curse Israel. God, famously, turned Bilaam's intended curses into blessings. After referencing the Bilaam story, Micah then speaks of sacrifices, temple offerings, seemingly without a segue from the earlier discussion. Verse 6. 
With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10,000 rivers of oil? And then in verse 8, we have one of the most famous verses in the Bible. He has told thee, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love true loyalty and to walk humbly with thy God? Temple rituals, in other words, are only truly valuable if they are reflections of inner devotion to and dependence on the Almighty. But what is the connection between this message and the earlier story of Bilam? In an interesting lecture on this passage in Micah, which is read as the Haftarah for the Shabbat when the Bilam story is declaimed, Rabbi Moshe Lichtenstein noted that Bilam himself brings sacrifices prior to his attempted cursing of the people of Israel. Bilam's rituals, in other words, are the ultimate embodiment of an external rite that in no way reflects a flow of love loyalty, dependence, and mercy from one's soul. Micah thus seeks to contrast this with what the Bible truly asks of us. Rabbi Lichtenstein put it this way, quote, Bilaam was a magician, and the actions that he performed on behalf of Balak were based on magic and sorcery. In the framework of such an outlook, a sacrifice does not express inner religious experience, but rather the attempt to magically appease God by way of actions and deeds that will win him over. Just as at the outset Bilaam does not examine the true will of God, but rather he tries to appease him, so that he not be angry with him, so too his attitude toward the sacrifices. What underlies his actions is not a bending of his inner will to God's will, but rather the performance of external actions. All this stands in stark contrast to the position presented by Micha, that sacrifices are meaningless when unaccompanied by deep inner religious experience. Bilam sets man in the center, and therefore he all the time glories in his great powers and spiritual attainments, whereas Micha sees man as subject to God and obligated toward others. His message is to practice justice and loving kindness towards others and walk humbly with God. End quote. Thus, Micah's message is external restoration of Israel must come hand in hand with internal restoration, with restoration of inner character and connection with the divine. It is with this in mind that we can approach a ritual that emerged in Ashkenazic Jewry and spread powerfully, for it too is linked to verses in Micah, indeed, to the penultimate verses that bring the book to a close. This is chapter 7, verse 18. Who is a God like thee who pardons iniquity and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not maintain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion upon us. He will suppress our iniquities, and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You, God, will cause our sins to be cast into the surf. This verse is always added to the end of two Haftaras. First to that of Shabbat Shuvah, the one read before Yom Kippur. And then it is added as well to the conclusion of the book of Jonah on Yom Kippur afternoon. And Micah's words have served as the inspiration for one of the most famous Rosh Hashanah traditions, standing on the edge of a body of water so that our sins can be symbolically cast into the depths. The original tradition is not action, but recitation, standing and saying this verse from Micah along with others. The critical word is vitashlich, you shall cast away which gives the ritual its name, Tashlich. At first blush, this tradition seems somewhat superstitious and strange. After all, as the humorist R.E. Shea is supposed to have put it, depend on the rabbit's foot if you will. But remember, it didn't work for the rabbit. The commandments of the penitential season are well-defined. Shofar, prayer, repentance. And yet, while not everyone has the tradition of Tashlich, it was, for example, not the tradition of my family, the fact is that Rosh Hashanah over the years has, for all of us, become dominated by actions performed as omens, dipping an apple in honey as a prayer for a sweet year to come, 
along with the ingesting of a variety of other foods that serve as linguistic puns transformed into prayers for the new year upon us. Do not these rituals and omens not count as external acts of attempted supernatural control against which Micah warns? The answer, I think, is that it depends. An omen engaged for purely external superficial purposes is a hollow one. But a tradition intended to encourage and improve our internal perspective can be of great value. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, reflecting on the tradition of Tashlach, cites Maimonides, who in his Guide for the Perplexed writes the following about a different ritual, quote, There is no doubt that sins cannot be carried like a burden and taken off the shoulder of one being and laid on that of another. But these ceremonies are of a symbolic character and serve to impress people with a certain idea and to induce them to repent as if to say, We have freed ourselves of our previous deeds, have cast them behind our backs, and removed them from us as far as possible, end quote. The point, perhaps, is that the task of internal change, true to Shuvah repentance, is a daunting one. And, as Martin Seligman reminds us, in approaching the setbacks that we have experienced in our lives, our mindset matters. At times, actions can serve as a way of helping us visualize a changed future and leading us to that future itself in which the obstacles are overcome. If you forgive the mundane example, I read once an interesting discussion about the great baseball player, Wade Boggs, who would famously engage in a variety of rituals prior to stepping up to the plate, including writing the Hebrew word chai, life, in the dirt of the baseball field itself, in the Hebrew letters. And it was in an interview that Wade Boggs' sister Anne once commented about her brother's psychological preparations. That, quote, it's not that he really believes in all of them. Taken together, they are part of a deliberate process he goes through to focus his mental and physical energy. They are the weapons he uses to maintain control at the plate, end quote. Or, if I may quote the immortal Yogi Berra, baseball is 90% mental and the other half is physical. Some baseball players use rituals not because they believe they are endowed with magical ability, but rather in order to allow them to focus. And in a somewhat similar sense, my grandfather once suggested that the omens of Rosh Hashanah are intended to enthuse us, to set us up psychologically on Rosh Hashanah for the task at hand. And one can similarly say that the tradition of Tashlach can be understood as a preparation for the days to come, reinforcing within us Micah's assurance that sin is not a permanent state, thereby setting us up psychologically for the task of repentance, reminding us to see our failures as temporary, as setbacks that can be overcome. And in the end, the framework for adopting this approach can be found in Micah's words that conclude his book, Thou wilt show truth to Yaakov, loyal love to Avram, as thou hast sworn to our fathers from days of old. In the end, our confidence in spiritual restoration comes from thinking within a covenantal framework, a feeling that we are part of something greater, stretching all the way back to God's relationship with Abraham. Tashlich is about reminding us of Micah's description of God's connection to his people and our connection with each other. Martin Seligman has written interestingly on how today's rampant individualism has allowed pessimism to perpetuate itself. He writes, quote, The life committed to nothing larger than itself is a meager life indeed. Human beings require a context of meaning and hope. We used to have ample context, and when we encountered failure, we could pause and take our rest in that setting our spiritual furniture, and revive our sense of who we were. And he adds that, quote, in many ways, extreme individualism tends to maximize pessimistic explanatory style, prompting people to explain commonplace failures with permanent, pervasive, and personal causes, end quote. In Micah, we discover our covenantal connection, our feeling of belonging, 
and our ability to overcome our failings and our fears of the future. And today, in re-engaging Micah's beautiful words, we realize that it need not be Rosh Hashanah to inspire ourselves to work to make our year all the more sweet. This is Mayor Soloveitchik. Looking forward to learning together tomorrow. Signing off.